This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. To explain the Reserve Bank's November monetary policy statement, we're joined by Deputy Governor Christian Hawksby. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. So your language in the monetary policy statement was quite strong. Why was that? Uh, well, well, it just really um, you know, captures where we are uh, at the moment in terms of uh, how the economy's evolved, what we've learnt um, from last time, um, how confident we are about um, you know, achieving our mandate, getting inflation back into that um, target range. And, and the reality is that the, uh, the economy has running, been running a bit stronger uh, than we'd been expecting. Those inflation pressures are lingering a little bit longer than we're, we've been expecting. Um, and there's little margin of error, really, in terms of wanting to get inflation uh, back down again and just really setting in that out clearly. So you have a willingness to hike. What chances would you say there's a hike early next year? Uh, well, at, at every meeting, you know, every option is on, on the table. Uh, you know, that'll be something that we'll come back to uh, in February. It'll be all about um, how the economy's evolved, how those inflation pressures are building or abating. We'll be looking at the full range, you know, of measures of uh, what's happening on the demand side of the economy and, and critically what's happening to those you know, core inflation expectation measures. What are you watching out for most over summer? Well, it is, it is that full piece. It's a, it's a long period of time through mm. summer, as you know. It is a little longer than the normal six-week break, but it will be that, that whole gambit, everything that feeds into uh, inflation pressures. So that is inflation. What do you think of this new selected prices index from StatsNZ? What, how did that help you in your decision making in November? Uh, so, so that'll be one measure that, that you know feeds into our overall uh, assessment. We have a lot of you know indicators that that feed into uh, our overall inflation forecasts. Um, that that, will, that is helpful. That is you know one piece of the puzzle. A critical piece for us is the looking looking forward. Um, into you know how's that going to play out from here, and a lot of that depends on uh, what we're seeing on the demand side uh, of the economy. In terms of the November decision, was there a preference by some members to hike? Then uh, it was discussed, and, and that's outlined in the record of the meeting that um, putting the OCR up was uh, one of the things that the committee uh, did discuss. Uh, you know, clearly we we chose to keep things on hold um, for now and see how things uh, play out. Uh, but I think the other really key aspect of our uh, decision was uh, it's not really since the depths of the uh, of COVID outbreak that we've put so much weight on uh, different scenarios that could play out um, from here. Um, that's typical when you're at a turning point or inflection point. Uh, it is a little less around the central projection and, and how things um, could play out either way. Um, so I think that's a real key message uh, of the material. Uh, that we've put out, we've got a scenario there where um, uh, demand is stronger, inflation pressures are stronger, and that'll be really something that um, you know uh, forces our hand. You're really watching that migration figure. Well, that is uh, the big news since uh, August has been how the population growth mm. and how bigger uh, the population is because of the net migration uh, that's um, kept coming through um, stronger. Um, than anyone had anticipated. So that's one you know, piece of 
key information since August. We've also learnt a lot around um, you know, how net migration plays out in terms of the demand side and the supply side of the economy. So, so I think this time around, and it really does depend on the, the, the type of immigrants, uh, where you are in the economic cycle, all of those um, things. And I think what we've learnt is that in a situation where we have been, which is a very tight labour market, mm. a lot of difficulty finding workers, then actually the, the immediate effect is a supply side one of easing those labour market pressures. Um, so that's what we observed first. Uh, more recently there's been much more signs that the, the demand effects are coming through of just having more people to be housed, uh, the impact that has on uh, rental inflation. You're putting emphasis on the demand side that they bring now rather than the labour supply. That's become more evident more recently, so we, we are getting that, that fuller picture uh, now and, and those, those demand effects are being felt. Uh, we need spending in the overall economy to cool um, for demand to better match supply. Uh, when you've got more people in the economy, uh, that means you need to do a little bit more work to get that per capita um, consumption down. The, the official data is showing retail spending is pulling back, electronic card spending is, is softening. That must mm. be pleasing for you. Well, we are seeing that our, you know, our work is having its effect. You know, monetary policy is working. Uh, interest rates are biting. Uh, we are seeing more subdued um, consumption. A number of those measures coming through. Uh, it's really about are we seeing seeing enough? If you go back to the middle of the year, we talked a lot about watch, worry, and wait, uh, and that's because we'd lifted interest rates very sharply over a short period. Mm. We thought we we're sort of roughly in the right place. Uh, then we just need a little bit of time to see how that played out, see what else occurred uh, in the economy. Um, but you can't watch, worry and wait forever. You know, you need to be willing to, to do something else. You may hike in February. The market is sort of, some pundits are saying there could be a February hike if it's looking too hot in the economy still. Uh, that's, that's certainly on the table mm. and that'll be dependent on, on how the data progresses then. So quite a few weeks now till that February meeting. Are you going to be watching something in particular over that December-January period, i.e. migration? Are you going to put more weighting on, on looking at that rather than consumer spending, for example? Well, there'll be all the big you know, numbers will come through, the GDP, mm. um, C- CPI, uh, a lot of information will come through on the labour market. Uh, we've got some big... Um, business and consumer confidence uh, surveys will, will come through. So all of those you know, key measures uh, will uh, be available. And we'll also learn more mm. about how the economy is working. Um, and that's you know, the other thing that happens in between meetings is just learn more about these nuances around things like uh, the impact of population growth on our mandate. The market is looking for when you may indicate a cut. They've got a little bit more time to wait for that. Yeah, so I think a key key outtake from from our decision and communications this time around is that we're just really not in the mindset to be thinking about um, cutting the official cash rate. If you look at the uh, our central projection is uh, sort of no action on that front next year uh, at all. Uh, it, it really is more about whether we have to do more or not uh, for now. Uh, we will re- revisit that. You know, every three months, uh, and I'm sure that those central projections will move around as, as we learn more. You had a constructive meeting with the new Prime Minister and, and new Finance Minister. How did the meeting go from your perspective? 
oh, it was very, very positive, very professional, very, uh, you know, we've been very clear that uh, inflation's our, you know, first, second, third and fourth priority. Uh, you know, it's uh, top of the agenda and we're very focused on that uh, and that's exactly what, you know, this government's uh, wanting us to do uh, as well. So that was that was very clear. The dual mandate obviously has been a discussion point over the last fortnight or so. It looks to be going very soon. How will that actually change the way you operate day to day? So we uh, we put out our uh, review of monetary policy um, earlier in the year, which was our sort of backward-looking five years. How's it gone? What have we learnt? Hmm. Um, what, what have we learnt about uh, the remit or the mandate? Uh, and what we s- said is that over that five-year period, we c- couldn't identify a decision uh, where we would have made it differently if we'd only had a price stability uh, mandate rather than the jewel, And that's because over that backward-looking five-year period, um, the the labour market and overall inflation pressures are very much aligned. They're telling you to do um, the same thing. We we did note that uh, on a forward-looking basis, we can absolutely have periods where they would be telling us, giving us different signals, and there may be a a conflict or a trade-off there. Um, and so we did advise in that remit review for inflation to be given more prominence, um, such that if there ever is a trade-off or a conflict in the future, it would be much clearer where we would land in terms of giving priority to get inflation down because uh, we know that that's so fundamental to us as a central bank and it, ultimately it will help the labour market as well. So retrospectively, would you have made the same rate calls if you had a single mandate over COVID? Uh, that's what our five-year, backward-looking five-year review uh, told us, yes, because uh, signals around the, la- the labour market and signals around overall inflation pressures were telling us were pointing in the same way. That might not be true in the future, and I think that's where this uh, having some more clarity and um, to, to the remit will, will be helpful. So would you have gone as low as you did? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 0.25. So in terms of your workings, if you have this um, inflation targeting only, uh, what will that mean for your staff? Will you need to do any restructures or hire more inflation targeters or or what will you need to do? Uh, I think it's more at the tail end of the process that we've got a, you know, we've got an army of economists who look at all aspects of uh, the economy um, all the economic data, uh, we're still going to have to have people who are experts on the labour market and understand all that, uh, the dynamics of the labour market and all the data coming out on that front because that is such a, a critical indicator of overall capacity pressures in the economy and we know that they ultimately feed into inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, so every central bank around the world uh, is an expert in its uh, labour market for for that reason. Uh, that will continue on. Uh, the differences will be, if any, uh, more at the you know the tail end of the process when it comes to decision making. Um, I'll just also add the you know one that five yearly review uh, of of how we went uh, looking backwards. You know, as as part of that, we have bolstered our resources. We're in the process of already bolstering our resources into our um, economics function and our monetary policy function. So, you know, uh, that's prime for us moving forward. And would you support an inquiry that Nationals called for into your decisions over COVID, specifically? 
Uh, well, the, the coalition have been very clear around, uh, you know, their intention, uh, their, their stated policies there in terms of an intention to have an external review, um, and it's something they've been very clear about. Well, um, you know, we've got our um, five yearly review, which we can contribute, you know, into that, and we'll be, you know, stand ready to cooperate through, um, you know, whatever review is undertaken. And what's your message to households, businesses now? I guess your final chance before February. Yes, well, we still are in that environment where just just to acknowledge that, um, you know, monetary policy is restrictive at the moment, interest rates are high at the moment, um, they are likely to stay high uh, for some time um, yet, and that's all about, you know, this process of getting our economy uh, better balanced, um, where, where, you know, the spending can be met uh, more properly by our ability to the economy to meet that. Um, and we're in that process at the moment. You know, for some people it's going to feel tough, um, but there is an end game um, there in terms of getting us on a better better footing for for the future and low and stable inflation is the, the goal ultimately. And you're comfortable you've got some runs on the board now. That's right. We're mm. seeing things we're seeing things working. Um, so, you know, we're confident. Christian Hawksby, thanks for your time. Kia ora. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Minister for Regional Development Shane Jones is back in government, as is the Provincial Growth Fund. Now called the Regional Infrastructure Fund, and with $1.2 billion in the kete, there are many interested to see where the money will go. Shane joins me now to discuss. So can you just talk about the primary goals and what you're hoping to achieve with this new Regional Infrastructure Fund? Well, the Regional Infrastructure Fund follows on from the Provincial Growth Fund, which was closed down in 2020 after um, I was uh, booted out of public life. Uh, The focus this time is the resilience of regions and um, a variety of infrastructure projects that future-proof our communities, make it easier for businesses to function and flourish. I mean, there'll be a host of small projects, and there's still lots of money, but if I take, for example, the essentially the sort of sustainability of small settlements like Paihia, unless we put some um, breakwater investment in the tide, what with uh, volatile weather and climate change, uh, we're going to see a consistent and... Um, devastating erosion of the road, then it'll go to the businesses, and then it'll kill off tourism. So that's a tiny example. But look, there'll be a robust process. Uh, Ministers will be involved in settling the criteria, and it's um, a sum of $400 million, which will be um, allocated year after year. But it has to obviously fit a plan, and areas of concern to me are flood resilience, if I look at Taitokero, if it wasn't for the flood uh, work resilience and the stop banks, Kaitaia would have been devastated during the uh, recent adverse weather events uh, down in Kahungunu and the area of Hawke's Bay. If the stop banks around Taradale and Gisborne hadn't been boosted, it would have been inordinately destructive. Sadly, Esk Valley... I don't know if any stop bank uh, remediation work would have helped Desk Valley. I'll have to talk to a hydrologist about that. But that gives you an indication of where regional councils can work um, with uh, our government to get practical resilience outcomes.
how are the projects for this going to be selected and what criteria are you using? Yeah, well, the criteria will be settled um, by Cabinet and uh, we've got enough on our plate at the moment with our 100-day plan, which was uh, announced by the Prime Minister. But generally these things go through a consultation process and they have to be endorsed by Cabinet. And generally there's a small group of ministers who have sign-off authority and uh, in the bigger scheme of things, it's not a huge amount of money, but if strategically, uh, if we choose and are informed as to what are the most value-inducing uh, investments, then we can make one and one equal three. Talking about numbers, what do you expect the economic impacts of this to be for those provincial areas, particularly in terms of job creation and local business yeah, growth? Yeah, yeah, well, the specific numbers, we'll tease them out when we um, settle the criteria, but I'd just direct everyone to the many reports uh, that have been completed about the Provincial Growth Fund. I mean, the Provincial Growth Fund also invested in regional businesses that added resilience. For example, the gold mining company, uh, today they've paid all their money back this very day that came from the Provincial Growth Fund. So that's an example of where you're boosting resilience and you're strengthening infrastructure because you're actually enabling businesses in those areas that have um, pretty challenging social stats such as the West Coast. But I would encourage everyone to look at those historic reports and give an indication of the thousands of jobs that flowed from the Provincial Growth Fund. But this is a different fund. You mentioned Esk Valley and some similar areas where the environmental challenges we're facing are quite great. What role does environmental sustainability play in the selection and execution of projects under this fund? Yeah, that's a damn good question. If the fund is going to have a positive environmental effect, then it's got to place an accent on flood mitigation and flood management. Um, I mean, floods like to go where food likes to grow. And unless our river systems that have themselves been manipulated over the period of um, the nation's growth and colonisation, farmers have redirected water flows, catchment boards change the flow of rivers, so we're going to have to continually manage that and that's often going to be done by dredging and ensuring that uh, when, an, uh, when a body of adverse weather strikes that um, the water can get away safely without being uh, the, a source of danger or death to local communities. So that's all about stop banks. So. Obviously not every area is going to need... Uh, flood mitigation or stop banks straight away so how are you going to balance the diverse needs of our different regions here in Aotearoa? Well I think they've announced themselves eh? I mean all you need to do is that the the uh, worst per capita GDP stats for regional residents in New Zealand, first one is Taitokiro significantly lower than any other region and then if you look at the effects of um, these cyclonic events it's in the area of Hawke's Bay, parts of Bay of Plenty. I mean, the most benighted area is the Tairawhiti. It's only 50-odd thousand people living there and they're constantly being hammered. So I'd say that's probably a special case. But, you know, the challenge for that area 
is that if the roads are continually failing, then we need to look at things like the Blue Highway. But when I was a politician before, I found some money to uh, invest in a barging facility. But the local hapu at Hicks Bay, um, they opposed it and um, the money's gone. I understand that people are hoping to re-establish it, but my message to them is when you turn down infrastructure that's going to be funded through a grant and you tell me that you'd prefer to eat kinna and f- uh, root, then you're not the high uh, flyers on a list of priorities. How are you going to monitor the progress of these projects and evaluate their success against your objectives? Well, there's a team in the um, Regional Development Unit. Uh, they're ensconced in MB. And uh, now there's a host of uh, quantitatively literate people there. But look, the, some projects, um, they're going to need extraordinarily tight management because a big problem we have through inflation is cost escalation. Some projects that uh, may need further assistance, um, for example, the port that's being built at Oportiki, I mean, that's essentially redirecting the flow of the, I think it's the Waiotahi River flowing through uh, Oportiki. So, I mean, that's an example of a tremendously transformational infrastructure investment, well over $100 million. Uh, I don't see us doing a project of that size over the next three years, largely because such projects consume not only an enormous amount of capital, but also a huge uh, management burden. And there are a host of other projects where roads are failing, bridges are uh, fragile, and um, coastal erosion is threatening essential infrastructure. How are you engaging with local stakeholders, iwi, local governments, community groups in this decision-making process? Um, Every region has a development agency, and they're obviously a key port of call. Um, We need to be respectful and engage with our local government and regional government entities, but they all need to accept that uh, delivery is, and the capacity to deliver within a budget is the key outcome, and if you can't do that, I won't work with you. In relation to hapu and iwi, um, I'd just encourage them to work with their local regional development agency uh, because uh, I, I won't have the time to uh, put up with uh, strife and divisiveness uh, within local communities and I don't want to do anything that uh, feeds that appetite. Looking beyond these immediate infrastructure improvements, what's the long-term strategic vision for this? Well, I'm a politician who places great accent on climate adaptation. Uh, I don't have a great deal of um, time for all the shrillness and the hysteria around climate mitigation. In three years' time, I'd rather know that communities can see that the roads are safer, the stop banks are higher, the bridges are more resilient, and the uh, communities, the employers, the firms, and uh, the broader population feel a lot more secure about their future and where they live, uh, where they live, 
and um, there are a host of other industries in the regions that are going to be expedited and ignited. I've spoken about um, aquaculture. Obviously, mining is going to get a tremendous fillip from myself as the Resources Minister. We will not be tolerating any more demonisation, stigmatisation of mining in New Zealand while I'm the Minister. I'm sick to death of seeing all my nefts trot over to Australia and dig up Western Australia, but they're demonised if they look for a job in New Zealand in the mining industry. And uh, we're having a come-to-Jesus moment in New Zealand. Extractive sector is a legitimate, integral part of a flourishing economy. Any other comments around this fund? I think the fund um, will be a key contributor, however, of greater assistance is shortening the period of time it takes to build infrastructure, uh, approve infrastructure investments, and that means a fast-track process so that uh, projects aren't marooned and trapped in an endless cycle of consultation, litigation, and when you're not going forward, you're going back. When you stand still, it's generally when you're six feet under. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. The Coalition Government is promising to relax restrictions on mining and end the ban on offshore exploration for oil and gas. To talk about that, I'm joined by Energy Resources Aotearoa Chief Executive John Carnegie. So, you know, as a result, are we going to start seeing companies offshore looking for oil and gas? Well, we certainly hope so. Uh, but ultimately, there are going to be commercial decisions made by the, the, the investors. Um, but actually, just before getting into the conversation, it's, it's worthwhile just reflecting briefly on the nature of our, our energy system, because, of course, energy is fundamental to our prosperity and to our economy and economic growth. And what energy does is it translates into export revenue, to jobs, to the health and wellbeing of New Zealanders. So what we need in an energy system, and this is obviously going to frame how we approach the changes, is we need a system that's diverse, reliable, secure, and of course achieves some climate change objectives. And what we've seen over the last six years actually is a system that's got out of balance. And, I mean, and that's the argument that natural gas is seen as that transition, transition fuel to a, a zero, net zero carbon economy? Well, yes, but it's going to be a fuel that's going to be used through and beyond 2050, to be honest. So what it is, is a fuel that will help unlock our emission reduction goals by uh, supporting the development of more renewable energy, by avoiding the use of coal in our energy system, um, and by keeping electricity affordable, so then we can decarbonise our transport sector. So actually, the use of the use of gas has a number of both actually economic and environmental uh, benefits. But obviously the critics argue it, they, they still create emissions and that from their perspective, I'm obviously an environmental group, saying it's a backward step. Well, yes, if you take a one-dimensional view of our energy system, you, you could argue that. But I think what you have to bear in mind is that the global climate change goals are actually long-term goals. They're not goals that will be achieved next year or even next decade. Um, and the best way to achieve our goals is actually to have a prosperous and vibrant growing economy 
one that actually has um, increased incentives to invest in all forms of energy and fuels, one that is diverse and one that is affordable. So, you know, there, like, like everything, uh, Brent, there are, there are trade-offs in, involved, and we think that the, the trade-offs with the use of natural gas are the right ones to make because of both the environmental and the economic and energy system benefits. From an invest investment perspective, while this government is obviously making these changes, will investors look a bit longer term and think at some point we'll have a change of government again and then we're likely possibly, given what happened last time, to get a swing back? Does that sort of uncertainty play in investors' minds? Well, of course. I mean, investors, when they make decisions, take long-run risk-adjusted decisions uh, so they will factor those things in. But, you know, a couple of things behind that question, Brent. One is, actually, we don't know the future, so I don't know what a future Labor-led government, what their policy position will be, whether that's in three, six, nine or longer years' time, so it's just hard to know that. Um, but also, it's we're, we're likely to get permits, uh, new permits issued, um, and it would be... Uh, but they're, un they're going to be a property right, that's issued, and so, you know, the, the the last Labor government respected the permits that had been issued, and it's likely to respect any new ones that are issued. And I mean, looking offshore, are there clear areas where there is po the potential for exploration? I know, I know it's up to individual companies whether they do it or not, but yeah, well, there was the um, the Great South Basin, of course, um, that's that's been underexplored. Um, there's off the east coast. Um, and, of course, there's still potential um, on the Taranaki Basin. We've, in 2020, we had the Tutawai uh, discovery from OMV, so there's plenty of potential. But what the investors will look at... I mean, un unfortunately, we were known as having an interesting geology, um, and so to come and explore here, it was dependent largely on whether our distance and geology actually suited the, the company's global portfolio Unfortunately, because of the changes in 2018, now New Zealand's now actually more known for the level of sovereign risk that has been baked into the system. And what investors will be looking to do is see what changes have are going to be made. And clearly, we support the the new government's position on the reversal of the oil and gas ban. Um, they'll they'll look at just um, how how the long term durable and stability. Uh, with those changes, right? Yeah. So, so even if a company makes a decision, we're, we're not going to see anything happening tomorrow, right? Uh, well, well, um, the what we're likely to see, well, more likely, I don't know how likely we are, but more likely to see is that we've got a set of incumbent um, explorers and producers in New Zealand that they may well look at what's called near-field tie-ins. So they may look at acquiring permits that are associated or near their existing permits because you can, it's the least cost way of... Um, um, explore, exploring and developing fields. Um, so that could happen within a year or two, maybe. Um, but then it will be, it will take longer. It will take some, uh, take the, the, new, the new minister, both energy and resources, um, to be travelling around the world, to be telling the world that New Zealand is back open for business, both generally in terms of the economy, but also specifically in terms of energy. Um, and there'll be some hard conversations I imagine. And, and more broadly across, you know, sort of the mining area, I mean, is the message that New Zealand now is much more open to development of 
all resources than it was previously. Well, we'll have to hear that specifically from the new government, but that's certainly our expectation, that the, the new government is, is signalling quite clearly that they want to develop our regional resources for the benefit of regional New Zealand. And how much of an opportunity does that then provide the sector? Oh, look, it's, it becomes one of, one of opportunity. Um, uh, it opens up um, opportunities that obviously were foreclosed when you were in a, in a sector that only had the existing permits and you could not extend um, outside of those areas. So, so of course, uh, there are multiple new opportunities, both through, through uh, near-field, as I said, near-field tie-ins, through um, new permits and new basins. John Carnegie, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Brent. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.